You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law. Plain talk about intellectual property. Please welcome your host, Leticia Caminero. Hello from Washington, D.C. This is episode three. Today, we're going to learn about copyright for filmmaking and talk with a long-standing producer, director, and writer. Before we talk with our guest, the producer and director known for The Girl on the Edge, Off the Menu, and his latest film, Saving Paradise. Let's talk about copyright for filmmaking. In episode two, we already talked about copyright in general terms. Today, we will center on protecting audiovisual works. Who owns the film? The director, the producer, the writer, or the studio? Here are some things you need to know about copyright for filmmaking. The film is protected when created or created and fixed in a copy. Copyright registration is always encouraged to secure protection. In a film, the author can be either the director or producer or both. Many countries split these rights. In certain countries where moral rights are protected, the director enjoys the general moral rights over the film, the writer over the script, the designer over its design, and so on while the producer takes all economic rights. It is also common to see that the producer is the one in charge of representing the other co-author's rights. Now, please remember that this structure is usually when moral rights are recognized for films. From episode two, you may remember that moral rights are those eternal rights that provide recognition to the creator as an author or keep his, her, their anonymity and protect the integrity of the work. Of course, the allocation of rights can be agreed on a contract. It is not uncommon to see a producer holding all the economic rights related to the film. After all, they're often the ones who take all the financial risks. In some countries, there's also the structure of work made for hire. When someone is hired to create under an employment contract or a particular contract to create, in this case, the one who usually holds the rights is the person or company that hired the creator. Please make sure to understand your national law and any contract you will be signing. So now you know. Copyright for filmmaking protects audiovisual works. Who owns the right? Depends on the contract and the laws. Let's learn from our guest about his journey of becoming a filmmaker. Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law. Plain talk about intellectual property. Today, we had the great pleasure of talking with a multiple award-winning producer, director, and writer. My name is Jay Silverman. I've been in the business uh, since uh, 1980. I was a photographer for most of my career and then evolved into shooting television commercials and that evolved into shooting movies. And for the last six years... I've made three movies. Uh, one is called Girl on the Edge uh, that was produced by Sony. Another one is called Off the Menu uh, uh, that's on Amazon. And I just finished a movie uh, called um, Saving Paradise. So you first started as a photographer. How was your journey of becoming a filmmaker from photography up to making a film, producing and directing? 
Well, I think, you know, coming from photography, which is one picture tells a story to moving pictures, telling a story was not a difficult transition for me. Um, I really loved what I do. And the outcome of it is for me to expand it into large format. Storytelling was a natural for me. Um, it started with commercials and then it uh, turned into making full-length feature films. And I have a great passion to do independent movies. Um, and how are independent movies different from the studio films? Well, independent movies, is uh, it's a whole different field entirely for reasons that relate to uh, probably the, the simplest answer to that question is is I'm dealing with making a movie with a small group of people. Uh, the decision makers are, in my case, self-financed, so I don't have to deal with the studio system. Even though we make all of our movies with screen actors uh, from SAG, um, we're still independent filmmakers. And um, it's just, you know, what we can do with very little money is something that Hollywood cannot do. And... I think we take a great deal of pride in putting a lot on the screen for, you know, you, you just watched uh, my last movie called Off the Menu, and that movie was made and produced for less than $1.5 million. Uh, there's really no Hollywood movies that are made even close. I think the, the cheapest uh, Hollywood movie is made for $10 or $15 million, and those usually go direct uh, to streaming. So um, it's freedom um, being an independent filmmaker. I think it is. I think it's not just freedom. It's it's the, it's the idea that um, I can actually implement making a movie from scratch to conclusion on my own terms. And and in uh, being in the business of advertising and then commercials. You know, there are so many decision makers and there's so, uh, so much emphasis on the process that an independent filmmaker really has an opportunity to tell a story and, and essentially come across as being, you know, a, one, uh, um, a one-sided story rather than a collaborative thing. I mean, I made a TV show um, about eight years ago called The Cleaner that was on A&E And that show was, um, you know, essentially a collaboration between A&E, Paramount Pictures, and the creators of the show, which I was one of them. And it's a complicated deal because there's nothing you can do without going through just an immense amount of preparation and, and negotiating. You want to tell a story, you want to be a little edgy, and they don't want to be edgy. They want to be safe. You know, I can go on and on. Um, When you hear about filmmakers working for Netflix, one of the great joys they have is they're able to, you know, predominantly wake up in the morning and make a movie without having people standing over their shoulders and telling them all the safe ways to make a film. You do your own path in a way. You have your, your own, you have your vision and you can commit to it without being told what to do or what not to do. You know, I think it's indicative to... The, the writers of my last three movies, my first movie, Girl on the Edge, was written by um, a guy named Joey. Um, and, you know, this guy won um, uh, at Sundance Film Festival with a movie called Blue Valentine. Uh, and then we 
used him in a way that gave him total freedom. And it was just me and him and my small little team here versus, you know, an entire corporation is trying to mandate and fulfill so many categories that it, it becomes almost impossible to make, you know, your creative statement. Yes, of course, you cannot make everyone happy with one production. It's Correct. virtually impossible. Um, so talking of production, do you have a favorite one from all the ones that you have made over the years? Well, I think the my first movie and my last movie are my favorites. My first movie was a, was a film uh, about a young girl suffering from post-traumatic stress. Um, and uh, it was really important for me because part of her healing was done through equine therapy. So the movie kind of focuses on the treatment program and the, the essence of what it's like for parents that have these types of challenges come on to them, which is global. It's not just in the United States where a child gets involved in um, situations such as uh, um, rape, such as drugs and alcohol, and and they don't know what to do. And so, I mean, when I chose to make Girl on the Edge, one of my driving forces was to give back and show the fortune of a child recovering in treatment through a very, very unique, unusual way. And that's through equine therapy and a host of other things that, that the, the um, facility provided. Uh, I knew nothing about that. It's, uh, I make a joke about, you know, it sounds like uh, Ghostbusters, who are you going to call? But a parent that's <laughs> sitting home, a parent that's sitting home and trying to discover um, um, whom to call to help their own child is, is something that is global. We don't know what to do. You know, you wake up one morning and all of a sudden you're stuck. You, you never were prepared to deal with the kind of challenges of, of a child that's suffering from post-traumatic stress. And in my last movie, which is a movie called Saving Paradise, that film, again, is very personal to me because I think with the division of what's going on in the United States uh, with uh, politics and the, the global issues of trying to keep people employed in jobs that are meaningful, Um, I came upon a script written by Van Bullitt that is called Pencil Town, uh, which we now call Saving Paradise. But that movie was uh, very um, exciting for me because it was about a small town that has a pencil factory and the town relies on the pencil factory for employing them. And what ended up transpiring is, is the owner of the pencil factory ends up passing away and passing it on to his son. And all his son really understands and knows is to essentially uh, take the property and sell it so he can uh, move on. And he's convinced throughout the story, and very similar to um, It's a Wonderful Life, um, to try to, with the employees, work together to try to save the factory. And... It was really exciting for me because I could tell the story in many ways and the way we chose to collaborate with the writer and actually make a story that we're all very proud of, um, you know, turned out to be something yet again, that's a give back from me as a filmmaker to the world 
so they can see how a small town deals with this kind of tragedy and how they can overcome it. Yeah, and it's something that is very current in these times. And how is your creative process that leads to making films or TV shows? Well, my creative process is I've got two anchors working with me, a gentleman by the name of Joe and a woman named Bethany, and both work in tandem with myself, bringing me projects that are meaningful. And, you know, they're looking for the next big thing. And in, in my case, the next big thing is, is something that kind of hits you viscerally, you know, and makes you think and, and especially during these, you know, really unique times, um, small stories that have big ideas, I think are, are really desirable for an independent filmmaker. Um, your movie that I just saw off the menu, um, it's, a, it's a very unique story, but also it's universal. The way that she feels passion for what she does, uh, she's very eager to protect it as well. Uh, she has a heartbreak from a past relationship which doesn't let her heal or trust again. So all those things that we can all relate to because we all, we all have been heartbroken. Uh, we all try to pursue a passion in our lives and it's always uh, hard to trust after being uh, after being mistreated in the past. So I, I can see that uh, um, this this type of ideas or stories are, are very moving to because they, they tell it, they tell something unique, but at the same way it's universal. Well that again that's that's what interests me about off the menu um, uh, from the moment I read the script. interestingly enough for your viewers out there, we went to a script pitch. Uh, down the street on Hollywood, on Santa Monica Boulevard. And there was, uh, I think, uh, perhaps uh, 50, 100 writers pitching two companies like myself. And uh, we heard the pitch and we were intrigued and we read uh, the, the screenplay and we all walked away going, I think this could be our next movie. And we spent a year developing the movie with the writer And, you know, one of the biggest challenges for a filmmaker um, when you begin this process is how can you tell the story better as a filmmaker than what's on a written page? How can you embellish it at a level that um, not only features a protagonist, but all the textural aspects surrounding it? And then, of course, the big question is how can you afford to produce it? That takes a year or two to develop Because, you know, instead of the character, um, I'm, I'm making this up right now, but instead of a character stepping into a Maserati and driving around town, he, he may not be able to, we may not be able to afford to get a Maserati, you know? And yeah. <laughs> those, those types of things, and I'm being, you know, spontaneous in my assessment, but mm -hmm. they play a huge role. And another thing that plays a huge role is the feasibility of being able to produce a movie within four or five weeks um, on budget and with, you know, people that uh, are very talented, actors, producers, and all the, you know, assortment of crew people that we bring on. So there's a lot of logistical things. And now, of course, you got COVID, which I haven't shot during COVID, but I own a stage here in Hollywood and it's a big deal. I mean, these guys have uh, an added pressure of trying to stay healthy and at the same time uh, continue to produce work on a shorter day. 
Um, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It's quite a, a, a large group of people that make one film. Even in independent films, you, you rely from technicians to, to the actors, to everyone behind, to directors, producers. So it's quite, it's quite a large group of, um, of people all pushing to, towards the goal of making a film. Would you consider intellectual property part of your success or your business model as a filmmaker? I think as a photographer and a filmmaker, uh, yeah, it plays a huge role. It is the beginning and the end of, of having something that's meaningful to show for all your hard work. So do you have any anecdotes or do you remember any experiences in dealing with IP, either copyright, trademark, licensing, royalties, anything that uh, our audience can learn from? Well, yeah, this is a really, really fascinating thing. Here I am in my 60s, and, and I'm telling you that since we, we all come home at night and watch TV, <laughs> I'm watching a movie last night, and, and uh, it, it, I, I see, um, he, here's my analogy. Um, number one, affordability. When you wake up in the morning and you do an independent movie, you have these big, big eyes of thinking that you're going to, you know, get a... a um, Uh, um, a Rolling Stones song for the opening, and then you're going to close on a Ray Charles song. I mean, it's um, it's uh, a, a, an incredibly simplistic category that's incredibly complex because if you own a movie, and I don't know if you noticed this, but when you watch older movies, and I'm talking movies that are 10, 15, 20 years old that are were big, big successes, most of them have different soundtracks now. Because they, they do not want to pay uh, into infinity royalties on all of these songs. And it never occurred to me until I made my last movie that um, there are so many young filmmakers that get involved in making films. And they, they think they got a great deal because they got a, uh, a Beatles tune, which is phenomenal. But, you know, the, the, the baggage that's connected to that annually in royalties is something that is going to displace your entire ability to make your money back. And I'm not even talking about making big money, but I'm talking about, you know, in, in respect to royalties and ownership. And when I do my movies, I own the rights to the film's music in perpetuity. And I don't do that because I'm a cheapskate. I do that because I'm looking into the future and I'm saying, how can we, sustain this film in the marketplace without having to bring it back, recut it and remix it and re-put in new music that we can afford in five years. Um, I don't want to get that bill for $500,000 uh, after the first year of royalties come due um, when I have to pay SAG, when I have to pay, you know, uh, um, IATSE. You start to get into scenarios where Um, being smart enough to understand up front that original music that you, you can own in perpetuity is going to make you safer in the future rather than waking up one morning and all of a sudden getting a bill and not having any revenue uh, to speak of that can, can pay for uh, the music rights. And the same thing applies to uh, licensing of pretty much anything in a movie. You know, I would highly recommend that if you're going to buy uh, B-roll, you buy it in perpetuity. You don't buy it 
as a one-off and then find out that every year you're going to be paying royalties on that on that image or that uh, stock uh, seven-second piece at the end of your movie. And by the way, this applies to um, buying uh, stock music. You know, you can buy it in perpetuity or you can buy it for a specific use. I, I know a lot of filmmakers that go to uh, market with a film that's got all these magnificent songs in it illegally and you know they're not worried about today they're they're, they're all they're thinking about is today excuse me uh, they're not thinking about tomorrow because when they go out and sell that movie all those songs they can't afford you think about um, um, making decisions on a long term I mean it's interesting the reason this hit me in a, a strong manner in the last three or four months is I started to watch all these old films that were just filled with blockbuster music. And now they've got soundtracks that are obviously redone with quote unquote sound alike. Um, and uh, the movies just don't, don't, they're not as entertaining, you know? I mean, I watched last night, uh, <laughs> Tom Cruise, uh, I'm trying to think of the movie where he's, he's a pilot. Uh, um, Um, yeah, Top Gun. Uh, Top, Gun. Top Gun. Yeah, and I mean, Simpson and uh, his uh, partner were totally um, uh, innovate, innovators at the time that that movie came out and just feeling the movie up with, you know, number one hits. Um, and the outcome of it is, is that, you know, who can afford that? And I was actually surprised that they retained all those songs when I watched it last night on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> they can afford yeah. it, you know. An independent filmmaker, I, I, I don't, I don't know of any stories where they can afford it. You know, it's it's a real separate divisional uh, aspect. And you, if you're smart enough, you can save yourself a lot of time and a lot of money if you hire a composer that's willing to give you the rights in perpetuity for the movie. And in my case, I give him all the rights to the music after a period of time, sometimes five years, sometimes three years. And that doesn't mean I lose the perpetuity aspect, but he can sell it to TV shows and he can sell it uh, for TV commercials, and which is what he's done and doubled his money or tripled his money. Um, that's a great combination. So uh, during the first uh, first period, you will do an exclusivity. So you, you're the only one available uh, or authorized to use the music for a certain amount of years. And then he can profit from it. Without sounding like a broken record, from my standpoint, it's a win-win for the filmmaker and the independent storyteller, and it's a win-win for the composer, because in my case, uh, Dave Holden, who's done the, the music for all three of my movies, is uh, reselling that music to a, a uh, I believe it's, it's a music house in England, and he makes, you know, quite a substantial amount of money off of uh, these uh, tracks that he cut for my movie. He can profit from his work thanks to a good contract with you. Do you have any other experience with copyright or an anecdote that we can learn from? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Just a brief note. I became very good friends with Ray Charles. You know who Ray Charles is. Of course. And, and um, I had a connection with Ray. And when he was alive, you know... Um, There was just an inordinate amount of, of uh, for lack of a better word, uh, contact that I could have because I could just pick up the phone and call him. And, um, you know, so I started developing a project and the project was quite extensive, but it depended on his music. 
And all it took was an afternoon talking to his lawyer that it was absolutely an unsustainable objective, especially for an independent filmmaker. You know, you're trying to make a, a, uh, a project work financially and you can't even get in the door because the costs of the copyright of both one side of the music and Ray Charles' voice, you know, could cost you 50 grand right out the gate. In relationship to copyright and ownership is do what happened to me. I spent a year and a half working on a Holocaust movie and it turned out that the woman who was in her late 80s um, had sold the rights to a German company, production company, and neglected to tell me. And here I spent almost a year and a half really developing the screenplay. And it broke my heart to find out that she could not pass, uh, that she had no control over her own property, despite the fact that the copyright, not the copyright, but her agreement with this company had expired. You know, her lawyer said it's, 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 a, it's a massive mess. Sadly, that's what happens when you sign off your rights without understanding fully why you're signing or why you're giving up. On that note, um, what would you advise to new filmmakers, producers, directors, um, screenwriter, any other <laughs> filmmaker, uh, creators um, out there? What would you tell them to do um, at the beginning of their career or in the first uh, project? And what would you tell them not to do? <laughs> I think it's super important that you are realistic with your budget All sorts of things are going to transpire that you never anticipated. And I think it's really, um, pre-production is everything, in my opinion. And that's why having a good producer is important. Having a good production designer is important. Somebody that knows how to work within a budget versus, you know, they have an impressive uh, reel and then you find out you can't afford any of the stuff they envisioned for your movie. People with, uh, with vision, but that can work within a budget with realistic vision in a way. No, I'm just saying, you know, to me, and, and I'm, I'm only saying this because I feel like you are uh, interested in hearing me speak candidly and openly about the process. I'm saying to you that, you know, um, many, many, many independent movies fail because of pre-production. They don't plan on things going wrong. They don't plan on things tying them up. They don't, they don't have experienced people going, boy, if we park our trucks on Melrose Avenue and we find ourselves, you know, uh, at the time of day that uh, no one ever looked at the, the fact that uh, you're not allowed to park on the street at that time of day. Just the time that it takes to move those trucks to another location is going to lose you an hour of production. And uh, on an independent film, that's like stealing a day. Uh, and after the movie is a uh, film, what is the next step? How do you how do you make it uh, possible to either go to the streaming platforms? Um, because I, I watched your movie on uh, last night on Amazon Prime. Right. So um, how do you come to that decision to where where you want to show your your film? You know, that that's a really uh, profound question. When I finished my last movie every movie that was being made after March uh, of 2020 um, was put on hold. So I think there was nobody that would disagree with the fact that there was a going to be a huge need for content 
hopefully by Christmas, okay? And um, in my case, we had finished the movie literally one day before the pandemic started in Los Angeles. And what I learned was, and now here I am in, uh, in October, uh, having a challenge, challenging time finding a home for it because all the movies that were finished that were coming out in theaters for 2020 were now in competition with my little movie. Uh, and, and, the, and the people that were paying you know, a substantial amount of money for those products were people like Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, and uh, you know, Apple and so forth. So it's, it's, it's you know, if, if you wanted to get your movie on Amazon right now, the, the likelihood is it's a transactional thing. If you wanted to get your movie on HBO, you got to sell it to HBO. And it's a tough deal because I've been lucky for my last three movies to have um, pre-sold it to HBO, pre-sold it to uh, Showtime, pre-sold it to uh, Sony. And uh, this time around, you know, the marketplace is entirely different than it was three years ago. So I'm, you know, I'm struggling with trying to find a home for my movie in this marketplace right now, which means to your question, uh, what do I tell the new filmmaker? There are so many opportunities now with all the streaming services that we're, we all know, I don't have to mention. The question is, you can hire an agent and put them in all those, all those, you can have it screening on iTunes, you can have it screening on Amazon uh, and pay for it. You, you give them a piece of the action. But the problem is, how do you get eyeballs to watch your movie? You need advertising, you need marketing, you need social media. The marketplace today in relationship to what it was three years ago is entirely different. And my bet is if you look into the future, it's going to be even more different. <laughs> yeah, so the, the trick is to to evolve with the times, to to find the, the new and best way to, to make... A, to make your film known. It's not only putting it out there in a platform, you have to promote it, you have to pursue that people actually um, watch it or know about it as well. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's an exciting medium, but, you know, I, I had a young filmmaker uh, call me up in the last uh, a month and ask me if I would meet with them. And, and I gave him the same advice I give myself, is you take it out to these small independent Um, um, either sales reps or uh, companies that specialize in buying independent movies and you pray to God they're going to be um, uh, ethical and and not rip you off. And that's what I told them, you know, but uh, this idea of winning a film festival and think that that's an invitation for you to uh, sell your movie is is a misdirect because it, it, it really isn't. They're... they're In the good old days, if you got into Sundance and you got in that Telluride and you got into, you know, these big festivals in New York and, and Canada, you know, you will have buyers in those festivals. But now the competition is so immense that unless your film was praised and features celebrities or it had something that broke through, it's, it's a tough road. It's a very tough road for anybody. I mean, I've been doing it for six, seven years now, and I, I'm prepared and, and lucky enough to say my movie off the menu um, is having a, uh, a nice run, but it's going to be slow. My first movie 
in, in, in respect to making back what I paid is, is, is getting close. And that's, that's a miracle in relationship to independent filmmaking. So um, it's not only getting the awards in the festivals, it's, it's about being smart and how are you going to uh, commercialize your, your film? That's correct. That's correct. I mean, look, I listen to NPR every day <laughs> and I listen to <laughs> TED Talks and, and I'm very, you know, intrigued. I mean, I just listened to a, a one hour podcast yesterday with a, with a famous actor, director. And then, then that night I watched the movie. Um, that's what everybody prays for that type. But, but if, if Ethan Hawke did, which is what I'm talking about, he did a movie and he has a TV show now on Showtime, you wake up in the morning and that, that publicity, that machine that creates conversation about his film is the only way to get people to take their eyes and, and, uh, and decide that's what they're going to watch tonight. Um, and how many people listen to NPR, you know, 5% of our, of our, uh, you know, adults, which is really not that many. The trick is to keep trying, keep pushing. Well, yay. Thank you so much um, for your time. It's, it's been wonderful to hear from you from learn, learning from you as well. And I really um, hope you have the, the best of luck with your upcoming project. Thank you. And and please uh, let me know whenever something comes out, because now I'm a fan. I'm a huge fan. Um, I'm going to watch the rest of the, the other film, The Get on the Edge, and uh, the rest of them. So I'm very curious about uh, how you tell the stories and how you um, focus the stories. It, it, it was very, at least from the one that I saw last night uh, of the menu, it's very unique, the, your eye through the story. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you can see that I was a photographer. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I yeah, got I would... so hungry as well watching that film. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. There you have it. Thank you so much, Jay, for taking the time to answer our questions and giving us the advice to plan long-term, prepare your production within a realistic budget, and surround yourself with the right people. The magic of the film is in the result of the hard work of its creators. And for them to enjoy the fruits of their work, they must enjoy effective copyright protection. And so we come to the end of our episode. See you next Tuesday with a new guest and a new IP topic. Thank you for listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Did you like what we talked today? Please share with your network. Do you want to learn more about intellectual property? Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website www.intangiblia.com. Copyright Leticia Caminero 2020. All rights reserved. This podcast is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as legal advice or legal opinion.